Welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. My name is Henry Rivera, and I will be the host for the show. In this episode, we are joined by the big boss, Crystal Allen, who is the founder and CEO of K. Allen Consulting. Throughout our conversation, Crystal and I take a deep dive into her career in education, the founding of her company, the services it provides, and much more. As a side note, I apologize for the sound quality. Technology and I are still getting to know each other. Aside from that, I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. Buckle up, because today we are joined by another intellectual powerhouse boss lady. Her name is Crystal Hardy Allen. She is the founder and CEO of the education and management consulting firm K. Allen Consulting LLC, which provides professional development thought leadership, and philanthropy to schools, nonprofits, and businesses worldwide. She is a first-generation college graduate from the University of Notre Dame, an MED recipient from National Lewis University, Chicago, and a doctoral student in educational leadership at Teachers College, Columbia University. Ms. Allen has profound experience in education as she was an elementary school teacher, an instructional coach, an assistant principal, and a school principal. She is also a 2019 Gambit 40 Under 40 recipient, a 2019 Aspen Institute Ideas Festival Scholar, the 2016 Urban League of Louisiana Activist Award recipient, and serves as a member of the Board of Directors of KidSmart, Success at Thurgood Marshall, and the Selma Center for Nonviolence, Truth, and Reconciliation. I don't know how we got so lucky, but I am blessed to have and welcome the future Dr. Crystal <laughs> Allen to the podcast. How are you doing today, Ms. Crystal Allen? I'm well. Wow, really grateful to be here with you. Yes, me too. So let me ask you a question just to start things off. Have you always been the type that, you know, just exceeded in all of the expectations people had of you? Um, yes. I would say that I've I've for a long time had a deep sense of internal motivation and um, drive from honestly repeatedly being doubted. I think I have a lot of identity markers that would put me in the category of being seen as quote unquote disadvantaged, whether that was being you know, a woman and thinking about sexism, whether it's being black and thinking about anti-black anti-blackness and just you know racism as a whole going to an undergraduate institution as one of the few people in the south growing up in a rural area versus urban you know like growing up in poverty versus having more financial means so I've, I've just consistently been in marginalized groups and settings and that has like pushed me to um defy the odds and write my own narrative of what I would want my reality to be, despite what the world said it would look like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that had to have been a very intense transition going from Selma to Notre Dame University, right? What was like one of the biggest like culture shocks that you experienced when you made that transition? Honestly, the first one was the weather. <laughs> um, I honestly am a Southern girl through and through. So I love the sun. The heat is my best friend. Uh, 
and just bright, sunny days. Transitioning to a climate that regularly, you know, presented itself with snow, with black ice, with literal below zero temperatures. Like I can recount my junior year during finals, the temperature was a negative 14 degrees and we still had to walk to class. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, So my face like felt frozen. (laughs) I mean, it was just, it was a lot. Like it was a lot and it was very dark. And, And so the, honestly, the climate impacts your mood in a lot of ways and how you can maneuver and interact and engage with others. And so I think there's a a salient part of Southern culture that's very steeped in um, this outgoing aspect, right? Of being hospitable, of like enjoying outdoors. And so that was like a huge shift for me. I think the second piece was really honestly entering a space in which my understanding of the stereotypes and negative perceptions of Southerners was deeply heightened. I didn't have cognition of that prior to that moment because I was just in my own reality and world where things were just normal um, to me. And I didn't necessarily have an understanding that people would make judgment based on where I was from. I was very used to that along racial lines, mm-hmm. growing up in a very segregated city and context, but also at an early age grappling with uh, matters of race. So definitely knew how to call racism out, like entering college, like at a very young age, knew how to spot it, understood what it meant to be seen as inferior just based on the color of your skin. So I think this idea that now I would get it all over again, not just on the basis of my skin, but on the basis of the fact that I was from Alabama. Blew my mind because I definitely had a Southern accent, you know, for sure. That was very heavy, (laughs) but was automatically assumed to be incompetent, not intelligent, um, not worthy, and not having the same value add as others. And so as I excelled academically, I could see the element and aspect of surprise in others, even folks who look like me, who were from different regions of the U.S. Oh, wow. um, and so it was, it was very much a moment of helping people really examine their assumptions, you know, and, and push this idea of not making generalizations. No different than how we understood that to play out along racial lines. And also gender lines, you know, and so that's why I think this concept of intersectionality in general is one that deeply resonates with me because I literally walk it in every aspect of how I show up in the world. To this day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even now as a business owner, um, I have no traditional background in business. I've known that, you know, a lot of what has helped me grow and scale a social enterprise from scratch has been a lot of grit, you know, resilience, um, belief in self, and, and honestly, a sense of, you know, fatigue of the status quo, having positive experiences in professional spaces, but also having enough negative or off-putting experiences that pushed me to say, I never again want to subject myself to not being appreciated in a workspace or not being valued, heard, understood. All of that has to do with inclusion, as we know. And with that, 
I created some type of resolve, you know, was created on the inside of me to say like, you're going to do whatever it takes to create the world, the work world that you want to engage in. And so entrepreneurship became that pathway for me to not only define myself for myself, in the words of Audre Lorde, but to be able to create opportunities, like unboundless opportunities for others without this obligation to ever ask anyone for permission to do it. Wow. I hope people are taking notes because that's, that's amazing. So normally, normally what I do is I ask people to tell us a little more about themselves before we dive into content, but I feel like we kind of touched on it, <laughs> but maybe uh, just to backtrack a bit and give you the opportunity to tell us more about who you are. Is there anything else that you would add to say to, to that or anything you want to backtrack on that tells us a little more about yeah. who Crystal Allen is? Yeah, absolutely. Crystal Allen is a proud black woman <laughs> who is, you know, a, a proud native of a small town that literally helped change the world. Selma, Alabama is where I'm from, born and raised. And um, it is very much so not only a place on the map, but it's a place that's deeply sewn into my heart. And I just consider it a part of my blood and my DNA. I think the way that I use my voice is very much connected to what I've seen modeled um, in my family, my neighborhood, my community. I am also a foodie. I love to eat. <laughs> I'm also very um, laid back and very easygoing in terms of just my, you know, overall personhood. But I'm very serious about my work and about doing things on the behalf of, of bettering communities um, in need, specifically Black and Brown um, students. I am a consultant. I am an advocate and also, you know, in a lot of ways, a speaker in terms of motivational, um, you know, speaking, not even by choice, but I just have stopped running from the fact that that is what I normally do. <laughs> um, as people feel, you know, compelled and moved um, often by the things that I, you know, choose to um, release and share from my heart. I'm, I'm a sister. I'm a friend, um, I'm a wife, I am I'm a human being who literally wants to leave a positive impact and legacy wherever I find myself, honestly. That's great. I, if you ask me, I think you're already doing it. What is it that got you into education in the first place? Mm-hmm, that's a great question. I can recount being in high school and having the opportunity to attend Xavier University's STEM camps um, in the summer. In doing that, I fell in love with that campus. I told myself that was my number one school. I wanted to go and um, become a doctor. That clearly did not happen. I did not become a medical doctor. <laughs> but in my mind, I had always known that I wanted to work with and support children. I admired the teachers that I had K through 12. I had a lot of strong black women teachers and being ultimately a first generation college graduate, that meant that my exposure in a lot of ways to professionals, so to speak, were teachers, you know? And so I aspired to be like the teachers who engaged with me. I admired the way 
they stood like with confidence, even if I didn't have the language to know that was what that's what it was. I admire the way that they instilled a sense of racial pride, even though at the time I didn't know that's what it was. Like when I really recollect on like the things that I learned and how we were affirmed in our identity, I'm like, whoa, they were engaging in culturally responsive pedagogy before it was coined a phrase, you know, because that was just near and dear to their hearts. I love the way they they walked and they talked and they showed up and they were community leaders. And so at a young age, I had told myself that I wanted to be a teacher. So I would take teddy bears and Barbie dolls and in our own pets at home and sit them like in a row and pretend to be a teacher. I just know that our dog, we named him Smokey. That should let you know how country I am. He like would get tired of me. Like he tried to walk away and I'm like, no, you have to listen. We're still in class. <laughs> My mom would come to the room. She's like, leave that dog alone. <laughs> and so I have just always had the desire to teach. And so when I went to college, I kind of deviated a little bit to say that like, I want to be a pediatrician because in my mind, the more I learned about the field of medicine and about the stereotypical definitions of what it means to be successful in fields, I said, I got to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I'm not interested in being a lawyer. So I'll be a doctor and work with kids that way. Got to Notre Dame, majored in chemistry pre-med, did exceptionally well in the program, went on a faith-based retreat my sophomore year and it changed my whole psyche. I came back and I said, I will lean into what my heart is compelling me to do, change my major, focus in on sociology and African-American studies, specifically understanding educational inequity in our country. And uh, the rest was, was history. When I graduated, I chose to, to uh, transition to Louisiana to teach because I actually got to observe Hurricane Katrina from afar as a college student. And so graduating in the wake of Katrina, to me, there was like no other place that I could have imagined being versus like here, you know, and, and literally supporting like the recovery of a city that had already captured my heart in a lot of ways, um, having experience at Xavier and just seeing our people be stranded on Bridget. I mean, just watching it happen to me, I'm just like, OMG, right? Outside of 9-11, like the imagery of Katrina that I could see, it, it, it's hard to put into words. Yeah, I understand. You know? I understand. Yeah, I was yeah. I was in high school uh, and we also saw a lot of those images. I'm from the West Coast, so we were in the West just mm. watching. So I wasn't a college graduate yet, but I was definitely like, wow, that that's yes. city, that city has been yeah. wiped out. And the government's response, you know, at that time it was was clearly it lit a fire in me in so many ways to want to be on the front line in some type of way and fighting for equity. And yeah, that, I mean, I would say those experiences uh, coupled with the fact that education has always been the space in which I could, I felt affirmed and I felt that I could discover new things about myself because my, my home environment, although, you know, loving was also very tough and challenging. And so there, there are things, you know, in terms of traumas, you know, that 
I really experienced by which school then became a safe haven for me. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I had good grades, and it's something that I think about as an educational practitioner to this day, that often you don't know what your kids are dealing with. And sometimes children who have more outward manifestations of misbehavior, so to speak, are the ones that we attract the most attention to. And there I was as a, a young black girl who never got in trouble, who had straight A's, who literally, you know, in so many ways witnessed domestic violence in, in the home, um, alcoholism, other types of things. And no one would have ever known because I didn't, I didn't have like outward manifestations yeah. of what I was experiencing, you know? Yeah. And so I was excited to go to school all the time because sometimes school was more peaceful than home. You know, one thing I wanted to touch on was how you had these female black teachers that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that influenced your upbringing. And I wanted to comment on that because I honestly, this is from my own observations. I have seen how powerful it is to have like one, just someone that looks like you in the classroom is mm-hmm. one thing, mm-hmm. but being in the classroom with a, with an older black woman, even yeah. as honestly, even as, an adult teacher. I remember you like as I, I did teach for America, and I also helped train the the incoming core members. And we had faculty advisors, so who were teachers in these schools, mm-hmm. and some of these were black women. And the way that they taught, I was yeah. I was taken aback. You know, it was yeah. it was in a way that it it touched the soul in a way that I just couldn't describe it. It's I yes. think there there might be a way. There might be some some way that we're going to theoretical theoretically uh, put it into practice. I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing it. So I I'm just wow, I'm a fan yeah. of I'm a fan of those those teachers and and yes. those teachers happen to be black women. So shout yeah. out to black women. Amen to that. Yo, it's about a thing. Uh, yeah, feel real good. I wanted to talk about K. Allen Consulting and the work that you do. So you do consulting for education and management, but what is special about K. Allen Consulting? How is it different than other education consulting firms? So our consulting firm, number one, is um, Black-owned and proudly um, POC-operated. 100% of our team is black and brown. That is actually Indian American, Latinx, African American, and Asian American. And that is a very intentional choice. And for, for me as the owner, when I look around at the market of other more like boutique consulting agencies, they are predominantly white, like the entire staff. They may be white male owned or white women owned, um, but folks of color and black um, consultants are not owners um, of them and, and not partners are in like some type of key senior um, positions and so it was and has been very important to me to be able to demonstrate um, the power and unique value add of folks of color providing high quality services and being able to scale in the way that we've scaled 
without subscribing to what can typically be seen as white dominant um, values and white supremacist practices. I think that in a lot of ways, I have definitely been asked who my mentor was and names thrown out and each one of the names that were given out were white men, like mm. in the city of New Orleans or just around the Southeast. And for me, I think that spoke volumes that the assumption of me being a young black woman owning and leading a firm that now serves clients in four countries and has, you know, scaled revenue and all this stuff had to happen with assistance, help or permission of my white counterparts. So I think about that in terms of like the, the, the racial representation piece as something that has us like standing out. I think the second part is that we customize each of the services and products that we provide. So people are never given like a cookie cutter workshop or coaching session um, or strategic plan for their organization. We spend a diligent amount of time truly getting to know and understand the city, the, the staff, the team, the context, so that we can meet folks where they are because we recognize Detroit is not New Orleans. Selma is not Atlanta. You know, our rural schools are not our urban schools. Private Montessori, all of these contexts are so uniquely different, even though they have some commonalities. Right. Um, so I would say the customization is definitely um, a piece of our value proposition. And then the third piece, you know, I would say is that we're very affordable. We believe in meeting folks where they are, which means that even though we have a set baseline, you know, set of prices and fees for what we do, we also operate with an option of a sliding scale to meet organizations where they are because we simply are committed to helping them, you know, improve their effectiveness um, and not really getting caught up on the dollar amount or trying to, you know, get over on folks to gain for monetary gain. And so what I've noticed is that when you do get work, you don't have to worry about financial compensation. Like the, the, that is going to come. You just need to focus on doing good quality work because the impact is, is what's most important. Mm -hmm. And that is what will speak like volumes and, and, and ultimately your work will speak for you. Man, wow. I mean, how, how real is that? I think that's very refreshing to hear when you start going into business, you know, you go into business and it just seems so cutthroat sometimes that to me, it's very refreshing to hear that, you know, there are people out there who are doing some good, honest work mm -hmm. and are in it just for the simple fact that they just, they like what they do and they want, or if, yeah. even if they don't, they do a good job at it. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. That's that's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so from from the work that you that you are all doing, this might be kind of a difficult question for the owner and the founder. Okay. But okay. what's been like one of the most exciting accomplishments from mm. you know that that you've accomplished with with this firm? Whoa! I know. Most. I told you. It but was you know what? Because <laughs> I'm like, there are a couple different things. Okay, so I will I will tell you that. One of the most exciting things is uh, when we turned global, I, I can saliently remember getting email communication from an education leader in South Africa and I almost lost my mind. I was like, <laughs> what? Like, yeah, yeah. I was spam. I was like, this is not real. <laughs> um, and so I think in a lot of ways that definitely like moved me to tears because I understood that starting 
starting this work in this venture was a labor of love, but it, it, it came also as the result of me experiencing push out of a position in educational leadership. Um, and so what was a very traumatic experience for me, I used as an opportunity to birth something just transformationally beautiful. I didn't have the foresight to understood it to understand at the time would actually help me expand my impact far more far more than I could have ever actually even done at one campus site helping even more children more teachers touching more lives in terms of social impact and so I think that like that contract along with what then became work in Nigeria and now in India has those moments have just moved me to tears because I recognize that you have built something that was an idea and now it's like a legitimate organization, you know, and that is known in more than just your geographic domain, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think there's a sense of, I don't want to say validation, but there's, there's some type of like affirmation that like you can do anything, and anything is absolutely possible. And you have to trust the process, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. the process is is not always clear, <laughs> but it is it's worthwhile, you know? Yeah, yeah, that is pretty cool. And I also know that now you're also doing work and contracts with the government, right? Well, listen, that is about to start. We are officially certified as the government contractor. So that means we can begin um, doing that. So I'm in conversations right now with um, a couple of educators in Philadelphia and Rhode Island about working together on a contract. And I'm like, OMG. I see. This is why you're so busy. Thank you for taking the time. (laughs) Talking to me. Absolutely. Listen, I, I, I definitely can say that I don't think people ever arrive. And I don't, and when I say arrive, I mean like arrive to this point where things are too small and underneath you and like your ego drives what you do in such a way that you, you're not personable and not kind and you know, that you're like self-centered. Like I don't, because I, I really like still am learning and growing for real, like legitimately. And I'm like, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So much I'm trying to figure out. And so I don't see myself in the way that I don't want to even say like put you on a pedestal, but I, I just don't see myself in that way. I just think um, I'm just a normal person like everybody else. You know, I work like my butt off, <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just don't um, put myself above anyone you know else. And I think that like humility takes you a long way, a long way. to ask you about one of the workshops you have coming up you mm-hmm. um you're gonna have a webinar soon about how to create anti-racist schools can you mm-hmm. tell us more about that a- absolutely so the premise of this um training is to really give people 
very concrete and, and tangible um, pathways to, to, to bring this to life. I think that there's such a continuum when you talk about any work regarding diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, like you literally name, you know, all the things in, in that, um, in those different uh, pathways of study. And the reality is that quite often, so much of the work is about building awareness and we must build awareness. And yet at the same time, there is a framework by a, a scholar by the name of Dr. Barbara J. Love um, and it's called Liberatory Consciousness. And essentially it takes you through a four um, stage continuum of saying that in order to essentially be free and operate in a more liberated way in any aspect of your life, you need to first build awareness. And then that awareness building needs to then transition to analysis. So you're able to analyze the world around you, your workspace, whatever it is through that intentional lens so that you are able to, in a lot of ways, audit mm. your practices, audit your thoughts, audit your policies, all of those things. And then from analysis, you move to action and then you move to accountability. And quite often, a lot of our trainings rest at the awareness building level, maybe touch into analysis. But when we talk about what are the granular, tangible next steps that will ensure that you have a more equitable space, we're not really getting into that and we're not getting into accountability, which is setting actual numerical targets around these actions, making those action plans publicly visible to your staff, to families, et cetera, so they can hold you accountable so you can do the transformation together. And so this training um, really uh, walks through seven different domains of how schools operate to help folks understand how white supremacy is protected within those seven areas. But in, in addition, it really gives them the ability to audit their practices in these areas and be able to set concrete um, action steps forward. So for instance, when you think about um, one domain, which is organizational leadership mm -hmm. and management, there are a couple of questions, and, and I'm, actually gonna, uh, I'm actually gonna read you a couple of, of, of questions as, as an example. Right. One is, does the principal and each member of the school leadership team demonstrate an understanding of the impact of racism and systems of oppression? If so, how do we know? How is cultural competency determined at your school and how is it evaluated? What tools are utilized, how often and who determines it? There's also this question of, you know, what is the racial slash ethnic composition of your leadership team? Are people of color in positions of power and key decision-making within your school? Do they have real actual power or symbolic power? Who makes what decisions? Who's not at the table? Who has access to the decision-making process? Who has access to what information? What formal ways do you ensure that all voices, input, and perspectives are valued? How do you capture the racialized experiences of black and brown teachers and leaders at your school? How often does that happen? How does your school act on the data that it collects? Oh, yeah, I think a that lot That is of concrete. Schools. Yeah, That yeah. is concrete. That's yeah. not theoretical. That's not philosophical. This is pushing people to say, where am I aligned with these questions? But then also, here are my actual next steps. Meaning that number one, we need to get clear on what cultural competencies any leader 
needs to have to even work at this school? How's that put in the job description? How is it involved in the interview process? How do we actually evaluate it? Because we evaluate everything else. We have rubrics for everything else. True. Right? How do we invest money and funds into becoming more equitable? I'll give you a second domain area, which is finance and procurement. And the reason why we go through seven is because often people get stuck on culturally relevant teaching alone as a way to improve the school. And the reality is that is one segment of the work of making the school what it needs to be. And to focus on that abdicates us from the ability to call out the way that white supremacy lives in every other aspect of the school. So when we talk about finances, questions being what percentage of your budget is dedicated to procurement of black and brown vendors? Do you collect the data? Can you speak to what percentage of your spend is actually spent within your local like geographic city? Right. Because what we find when we engage in um, baseline auditing with schools is that the vast percentage of contracts actually go to white male vendors. And the vast amount of contracts that go to black and brown vendors are for food and entertainment, not copy. Wow. Not not workshops, not um, financial, not accounting. All of that stuff is predominantly white. And so a, a network might have over $7 million, of which only 200K per year is actually going to black and brown contractors. And, and when they are, they're just for food and entertainment. Oh, which man. reinforces <laughs> this idea of superiority and inferiority too, that yeah. like they're, they're not competent black and brown vendors to do the other work. And we are doing good enough job to have people cater, to have people be our DJ. Right. I mean, but that's just something to think about. But so, so when you think about it, that's an area that no one is going to be outwardly calling out nor examining. Right. But it's also an area when you think about even your ability as a school to contribute to your community and to address the racial wealth gap that you could literally be changing the lives of black and brown business owners. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. These are these are actual things that I wish I could tell you I'd thought about. I hadn't. I hadn't. I think you're absolutely right. Many times uh, a lot of the accountability falls on the teachers. And don't uh-huh. get me wrong, we do play a big role in it. But oh, yeah. there's but there's uh, such a vast not assets, I was gonna say there's other factors that are that are also contributing to white supremacy in the school system. So that's, that's amazing. That, that's, a, that's definitely, that's something that I, I, I want to look into more, but it's something you've, you've brought to my attention that I hadn't thought about. So that's, that's yeah. really cool. And so that training is going through over a hundred different uh, ways in which white supremacy can be dismantled in K-12 schools. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty that's, dope training. Yeah, sounds like it. And so, I mean, maybe by the time I put this out, I'm afraid, because I think it's on July 13th, correct? Yes, on Monday, July 13th. But yeah. well, we're going to do another one in August um, and in September because people are like, oh my gosh, I need more time. Like, can we get our whole school team to go? I'm like, yeah, you can do it. And so what we're going to end up doing is having a version for nonprofits and also having a version for businesses. So how to create an anti-racist business, how to create an anti-racist nonprofit. Okay, very cool. And if and if you do have some educators who happen to stumble upon this episode, but they maybe stumble upon it too late, is there any way that they can still access some of that information? That's or the webinar? Good. 
So I am actually thinking of video recording Monday's session and um, providing it for sale, like for replay. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking. Cool. About it. Cool, cool. I tend to be old school, Henry. So I like people. I like the people to be there. I'm like, yeah. no, it's not the same. You can't watch the video. <laughs> you gotta come. You gotta come. No, and 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 there's there's a huge value to that, right? If you have questions, you can ask them there and then. But I I would consider if I were you, you know, I would consider. Yeah, I, should I think consider. it'd be beneficial. I should consider it. Okay, so one of the last things I wanted to ask you, since you know uh, you're providing some of these webinars, which I think are going to be life changing and like social changing, I, th I think that's going to be awesome. Um, what other resources would you recommend for educators to best serve their students during this time of you know social and political mm -hmm. upheaval? Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great question. So number one, for those of you who um, have Instagram accounts, I encourage you to follow the following accounts. So one is Conscious Roots, based here in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, two would be Overcoming Racism, also based here in New Orleans. Um, third, Kaylin Consulting. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Based here in New Orleans as well. The fourth uh, one would actually be The Conscious Kid. Um, oh. The fifth one would be Brittany Hawthorne. And I mean, there's just like a list of people that I'm like, oh, yeah. And then the sixth one would be Teach and Transform. And so I would definitely recommend following those uh, pages. I think secondly, I would recommend um, people to the Southern Poverty Law Center's um, Teaching Tolerance website. Although the name, like, Tolerance is sometimes not, in my opinion, the best name for it. The site itself is such an incredible hub of social justice education resources um, that start at pre-K, so early childhood ed, all the way to 12th grade. So mm -hmm. like book lists, um, lesson plans that are already vetted about historical events and forms of oppression and um, allyship, like all the things. I would also tell them to go to our website, which is www.k allen a-l-l-e-n consulting.org because we have a free downloadable social social justice education ebook that takes you through like accounts to follow links i mean like all types of stuff that people can literally just plug and play and like i said right. it's free sweet. already curated for them sweet yeah i'll put all of that on the show notes so people can you know like if, if you're trying to take notes just go look at the show notes it's all on there mm-hmm very nice. Okay. Is there anything else that you want the listeners to know about you and the work that you do? I want them to know um, that if, if, you know, their school or if they're part of an education nonprofit organization are looking to partner with, you know, a Black-owned business uh, in particular or a POC-operated business, that we are here you know, in the greater New Orleans region, um, but also travel uh, clearly to lots of different places and would love to support them by way of professional development workshops, trainings, one-on-one um, -on -one coaching, especially of leaders, but also teachers, as well as like small group or like team uh, learning experiences, retreats, like you name it. Any type of adult learning and connection experiences, we, you know, create and execute. So that's one thing I would also say if you're not following us again on Instagram, so follow us on Instagram. We're on Twitter at K underscore Allen underscore consult. 
and we're on Facebook. The page name is K Allen Consulting LLC, and you can like us and um, leave a review. Great, great. But normally, I ask if someone wants to get in touch with you. Like this is after the rapid fire questions, but I think you've just addressed that. I know you also have an email address that people can contact you if they want to know more about or you just mm, want to ask about yes. your services. Maybe you want to provide yes. us the email address. Thank you. Um, the email address is actually info at kallenconsulting.org. So I-N-F-O at K-A-L-L-E-N consulting.org. So email us, folks. Hit us up. <laughs> A slide in our DMs. There you go. <laughs> so we're going to end this podcast by asking you a series of rapid fire questions. So what I want you to do is listen to the question and the very first thing that comes into your mind, let that be your answer. Ooh, okay. All right, question number one, Selma or New Orleans? Ooh, dang. I know, how dare I? Dang, New Orleans. Oh, love it. are going to beat me up for that one. <laughs> All right, who's one of your favorite artists? Ooh, Beyonce. Mm. What is Beehive something? all day. All right. What's something people tell you that you're good at? Speaking. <laughs> What's the favorite city that you visited? Ooh, Barcelona. What tools do you use to stay organized? Ooh, Google Calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, key, right? Key. Who is someone you would like to see run for president? Michelle Obama. I knew it. Somehow I knew. <laughs> all right. In your opinion, what does someone need to be truly happy? Hmm. To know who they are and, and, and live as their full authentic self. In a school setting, what was your favorite role to play? Teacher. Nice. Best job ever. We'll okay. totally go back to it. <laughs> uh, can you say a sentence in any other language other than English? Mi nombre es Cristel. Um, y cuando uh, a las... Uh, a mi Universidad de Notre Dame, yo olvido más español. <laughs> What's your favorite book of the Bible? Ooh, Proverbs. Oh, good one. Um, and do you drink coffee? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, no coffee. Like you, so you, you, you run a business Metal coffee high. free. Wow, yes. good for you. Coffee free. <laughs> All right, this last one's more of a joke. Let's see if you can get okay. it. It, why did the math book look so sad? Why did the math book cosine? No, I don't know. I was trying to think of something that was like mathematical expression of term. No, what is it? I'm it's because it was, it was full of problems. Oh my God. <laughs> I got to use that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a book full of those. I All have right. to use that one. Yeah, it's an easy one. Well, oh Miss Crystal Allen, thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, talk to me, spread your knowledge, wisdom, inspiration. I really am. I'm very inspired by our conversation. So thank you so much. You and I, you and I will be in absolute touch because I just now that now that I can talk to you and I have access to you, I may or may not ask for your services. Oh my gosh, you totally should. You should you should bring my team and I to show me. Hi. Oh, oh wait, I, I didn't ask you if you were in high school. I am in high school. No way. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. You should totally make that happen, friend. We'll talk. We will definitely talk. Until next time, Crystal, we will talk again soon. 
Thank you, you so much. I really appreciate it. You take care as well. All right. Talk to you later. I have to thank Gerardo. Thank you so much for staying tuned for another episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Crystal Allen. All of the resources mentioned in this episode, including Crystal's contact info, can be found on our show notes. You can also contact me through email at theeducationmovement20 at gmail.com or through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at edumovement20. Thank you to everyone who has given this podcast likes, follows, and reviews. This movement and platform is growing because of listeners like you. Until next time, friends, please remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope. Peace.